Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3 Triple R. It's our 30th anniversary celebration this month. We are doing some special things each week, and this week we have decided to do another one of our 20 PhDs in 20 minutes programs. I have, uh, well, actually, I have 22 of them. I decided to change the rules myself because I just couldn't say no to some of them. They were so good. So we've got 22 PhD students waiting on the line to be interviewed. After that, we're going to roll the clock back 20 years to an interview I did with Professor Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell uh, some 20 years ago talking about the Pulsar. And this is a bit of a preview because next week we have an interview that I recorded just this week with Jocelyn Burnell some 20 years later. It's a lot of fun listening to these two and seeing how things changed or how the two of us haven't changed much at all. And uh, we'll be playing that for you at the end of the show. But right now we're going to jump straight into our 20 and 20 program. And the first person up is Amy Coe from the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Amy. Morning, Shane. How are you going? Oh, all right. Bit nervous. <laughs> Bit nervous. Well, don't worry about that. This is a, this is a friend. There's no one listening. It's just us. Um, you, you're working on uh, some of the effects of ceasing antidepressants and how complex that is. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, um, we've seen a, like quite a steady rise in antidepressant prescriptions over the last 30 years. Um, and at the moment in Australia, we actually have more prescriptions than people. Um, and the current COVID climate is going to, well, we already know it's contributed to about a 20% increase um, compared to the same time last year. So, um, but we know as well that um, patients uh, taking antidepressants in primary care, about at least a third and probably more now are actually taking them with no clinical reason to be doing so. So uh, on one hand, we've got um, antidepressants that save people's lives and are amazing for mm. them, but yeah, otherwise people are taking them and they don't need to be, which actually puts them at a high risk of some serious side effects. So yeah, we need to help people come off. Is it particularly hard to get people off of there? Is there a reason why it's difficult? Yeah, there's a few, um, there's a few different reasons. Um, a, a bit of research has shown that there's barriers on both sides of um, your doctor and the patient side. Mm. So there's a lot of fear around coming off antidepressants, like no one wants to go back into feeling not so great um, and there's a lot of fear around that sort of yep. thing. Um, yes, and I think as well there's a barrier there where um, patients kind of think that their doctor should help them come off first or the doctor thinks that the patient should bring that up first and so the conversation never happens and some of some people are staying on them for in excess of 20 years. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so now, very quickly, you're, you're launching an e-health tool to help with this? Yeah, that's right. So I'm looking at um, the Wiser AD online intervention, which will help support people um, to reduce their antidepressant medication and my PhD is aiming to optimise this e-health intervention to make it engaging for doctors and patients to safely and effectively cease antidepressants. Sounds great to me, Amy. Thanks so much. Take care. Next up is Niliki Poda. Niliki, are you there from the University of Melbourne also? Yes, Shane. Great to talk to you. Now, you're working on a particular type of biosensor that helps us detect arsenic. Now, arsenic, of course, is very dangerous to us in the wrong quantities. How, how does this work? Yeah, so there are bacteria in the environment that actually um, thrives in the presence of arsenic. So our approach is to understand how um, this bacteria functions in this toxic environment. Uh, 
And so we were able to use X-ray crystallography and other biophysical techniques where we um, saw there are proteins in the bacteria that binds with arsenic. And when it does bind with arsenic, the structure of the protein changes a little bit. Now, what is interesting is the bacteria is able to detect this change and then produces a whole lot of other proteins which helps the bacteria to survive in this environment. Mm. So we actually want to mimic this kind of similar mechanism onto a biosensor. So would we actually have the bacteria on the sensor itself or are we just going to copy its tricks? We're just going to copy its tricks. So for example, as I said, the protein that binds with arsenic, we're going to engineer the protein onto the biosensor so we can detect the arsenic in drinking water. Mm. And I, I assume these would be pretty small. You're talking about little lab on the chip things, right? So you'd be able to distribute them at locations where there was concern about arsenic poisoning? Yes, exactly. For example, in Bangladesh, it's very, very um, bad. The, the condition is just going worse there because of arsenic poisoning. So we're going to uh, develop something which is cheap and effective for them to use. Yeah, Nigali, it's, uh, it's great uh, work. I really am impressed by that. And I love the idea of pulling these things from nature in and learning how they do it because they, t- they do tend to do things better than us. Thanks so much for chatting to us today. Thanks, Shane. Okay, uh, next up is James Rule. James from the uh, Museum Victoria and also from Monash University. Good morning, James. Good morning. How are you, Shane? I'm good. Now, you work on something that's uh, pretty cool, actually, this idea of uh, seals and the, the history of seals based on fossils, which, of course, you're at the museum, so you must have a quite, quite a large access to seal fossils there. Um, yes, I do have quite a lot of access at the museum, although surprisingly... Seals actually make up quite a small number of the fossils that we have at the museum. The fossils are actually incredibly rare, not only in Australia, but also worldwide, Mm. which makes it interesting. Mm. And and so what have you learned in terms of seals? Because I I suppose part of it is learning about how they adapted to be, you know, quite amazing in cold water environments and quite distributed amongst the the Southern Oceans in particular. Mm. Well, the main thing that I've learned so far is that the seals that we had in Australia and New Zealand in the past aren't the same as the ones we have today. So if you go down to Phillip Island, say, you might see a fur seal or you might even see a sea lion in Australasian waters. But in the past, we didn't have these animals at all. We actually had true seals, which are related to the leopard seals or the elephant seals or the harbour seals in the northern hemisphere. And the main that I've learned so far is that they're actually quite late alive arrivals to the region and the world was a lot warmer back then. So having a lot of cold water adapted seals is actually quite a recent phenomenon. Yeah, very cool. And um, does this mean, does it give us any insights into how we'll protect them better just quickly? Um, Definitely would. Um, So the main thing is a lot of the diversity of seal stays concentrated around the northern and southern poles. So obviously, in the wake of climate change, the ocean's going to get a lot warmer mm. and the habitat and the environments these seals rely on are slowly going to disappear. Yeah. So that will really affect the seals we have today. Yeah. Well, good work, James. Thanks so much for chatting today. Thanks for having me. Next up is Jacinta Humphrey from La Trobe University. Good morning, Jacinta. Good morning, Shane. Great to talk to you. We spoke a few years back, I believe, but uh, good to have you as part of the 20 and 20 program. Now, you work on the, I guess, the terrible effects of us humans and our urban expansion and how that affects bird communities. What do we know about the, those, this idea of bird communities and how that, that is damaged? I mean, we don't talk about communities of birds a lot, do we? No, not not really. Um, a lot of people will focus on individual species rather than mm. all of the species as a whole. Um, so most of the research 
so far has actually occurred in the Northern Hemisphere. And it indicates that as we um, have higher density living, more um, houses, more impervious surfaces, so things like roads, um, we see a decline in the number of species that are living in these areas. Mm. And what what does it mean in terms of, uh, is it some species are really badly affected and others are okay? I mean, I assume that some just get the hell out of there and move on, but presumably some don't. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's one of the, the benefits of looking at the whole community is that we do see different responses between different species. So some species um, are really great at living in urban spaces. They're mm-hmm. really happy in our gardens and others are out of there straight away. Mm. And is there any correlation between that that information and ones that are therefore, you know, in danger? Are there some that, you know, want to move but really can't? Like, can we connect those up? Yeah, definitely. So there's um, some species, um, so we might refer to them as um, woodland or forest dependent species here in Victoria, and they obviously rely on native vegetation and they're the ones that tend to be disappearing quite quickly from our cities. Um, and they often also have um, some of the more threatened species mm. in those in those groups. Have we seen, uh, just quickly, uh, a push of some species into city areas as a result of the significant bushfires last year? Potentially, yeah. Um, we probably need a bit more research in mm. that area to definitively say that. But there definitely seems to be some anecdotal cases of birds turning up in unusual places. Yeah. Look, it's, it's interesting stuff. I, I love, uh, love all those birds out there. It's great to see that you're working on that. And thanks so much, Jacinta. Thanks, Shane. Next up is Emily Ramage from the University of Newcastle. Good morning, Emily. Morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Now, you're working on something that I find really interesting, and and it involves this issue of co-design when we're doing health interventions. Before we get into the actual work, tell us quickly, what is a co-designed program? What do we mean by that? Co-design is when researchers work with the people that are going to use and apply the research in the future. So it's not just you that the, the researchers doing the research, it's talking and working with people as as part of the investigating team and um, yep. the research. Jeez, in, in my world, we call that knowing your audience. It seems like a default position to have. Now, you're doing that in particular with regards to people who have survived stroke. Tell us about that. Yeah, so my PhD is looking at... Um, the design and the testing of an exercise program for stroke survivors um, aimed at increasing their physical activity, so looking at reducing the risk of people having another stroke in the future. And how would people engage with the program once they've, you know, what what would that look like, the engagement? So our program is actually um, going to be through telehealth. So Mm -hmm. one of the aims, we want it to be accessible across Australia because we know there can be some inequities around that. So Um, we're looking at engaging people through telehealth in our exercise program. And, and do you think the telehealth's up to that at this point? It seems like it, you know some parts of our medical um, world are still using, using fax machines and there's been a struggle to get telehealth out quickly. Is it ready to go for this sort of program? I, I think in our case it is, but we've put a lot of work into it. Yeah. And I absolutely agree. I think there's different areas um, and different health services that are at different stages of that. But definitely we've seen during this COVID-19 uh, period that people are really shifting very quickly, more out of necessity towards that. And um, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, thanks so much, Emily. It's great work. And I think stroke is one of the huge success areas of the last 20 years in seeing how we can, you know, if we act quickly, do the right things, we can get people to almost full recovery in many cases, which is, you know, a spectacular outcome. So thanks so much for your good work on that. Fantastic. Thank you. Next up is Eleonora Comio from the University of Nottingham and Monash University. Good morning. Good morning. Thank now, you for having me here, Shane, today. Uh, it's great to have you on the line. And you're working on making these particular, I, I 
suppose, fluorescent molecules or materials that allow us to investigate things. Tell us about those. Yeah, so in my project, I'm interested in the synthesis application of fluorescent probes for the study of G-protein couple receptors, which are GPCR and are surface protein. So essentially, a fluorescent probe is a drug that is known to bind to the biological target we want to study, and we synthetically modify to integrate in this structure a fluorescent dye. And we can choose among a different like palette of dyes of different colors and photochemical properties, the choice of which depends on what kind of biochemical process we mm. want to visualize and so um, we can couple these with different fluorescent space technique to monitoring the function of this biological target and this can be achieved in real time and in the native cellular environment yeah can, can you make any color you want because i know in some of these cases you want to have multiple colors in that in the one scenario so you can pick out different yeah. different things yeah? yeah 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 you can definitely it depends on the dye and also what technique you want to use for a specific application uh, like either you use from like single molecule microscopy or uh, resonance energy transfer technique like a BRET and FRET that allow you to monitor the binding uh, of uh, your probes to the specific target. And so you can use the probe also for screening for new drugs and uh, develop new drugs for a specific therapeutic target. Very cool stuff. I, I used to do a little bit of this sort of work myself years ago, you know, lasers and stuff. Physics guys, we love this stuff. We just can't get enough of it. I love it. Yeah. Um, good luck with that ongoing work. And thanks so much for Thank being part of the 20 and 20. All right. Next Thank up you next up is Hamdi Jama from Monash University. Hamdi, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. Good morning, Shane. Good morning. Great to have you on the line. Now, I'm going to feel guilty when we talk about this because I know I don't do the right thing personally, but you work on dietary fiber and and how that links in with prevention of heart disease. This this seems like a, a you know an interesting connection. Tell us about that. So, um, we know that uh, fiber is a super important nutrient um, that serves to feed the millions of bacteria and microorganisms that call our guts home. So, when the microorganisms consume the fiber that we eat, they release tiny molecules called um, metabolites, and these are actually official to us. So, we know that um, lack of fiber, for example, is linked to the prevalence of many diseases, including heart disease. So, my PhD research is trying to understand how fiber intake um, during pregnancy can influence the uh, or prevent the um, development of heart disease in the next generation. Wow. It, it's mind-blowing to think that, you know, what, what the, the mother eats will affect something that may happen, what, 30 or 40 years later in the child? That's incredible. Yeah, that's... That's exactly right, Shane. So the early life environment is actually super important. So, so far in my PhD, I found that a high fiber diet during pregnancy actually alters the gut um, microbes of the offspring. It alters their cellular and molecular um, makeup of their heart and prevents the development of heart disease. So you've got to remember to eat your fiber, everyone. Yep. Well, I tell you, Hamdi, I'm going to phone my mum up after this uh, and just check on what diet she had before I was born. <laughs> scared the crap out of me. Great work. Thanks so much for being part of the 20 and 20 today. Thank you. Next up is Yara Tundas from uh, the Origin Youth Centre for Mental Health in the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Yara. Good morning, Shane. It's great to have you on the line. On the line. You're looking at um, sort of some of these brain differences that you can see between various types of youth depression. I wasn't aware that you, you can actually see changes in the brain as a result of this. Tell, tell us what's going on. Yeah, that's right. So, 
Um, what we did is we looked at different subtypes of depression. So to be diagnosed with depression, you only need to meet for five out of nine criteria. Mm -hmm. And these criteria even include opposite symptoms, such as increases, but also decreases in appetite. So two people with depression can actually have completely different symptoms and receive the same diagnosis and treatment. Um, and what we did is that we took a big group of young people and divided them um, with a statistical method into groups that showed similar symptoms. And we found three of those different groups. And like you said, we looked at the brain differences in these groups. And one group that was uh, that showed increased appetite and sleep um, actually showed a smaller brain structure in a specific region. Wow. Now, this, this seems to me like something that this information is going to have to go through the motions of getting back into clinical practice so that people are more capable of identifying which is which. I mean, that, that must be an incredibly hard process, even once you've sort of demonstrated it, yeah? Yeah, like we're not quite there yet, unfortunately, but this the study that we did does add to the evidence that's already there in adults. And we were particularly interested in young people because all these processes are changing in adolescents. Like adolescents often sleep more, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Look, this is an incredibly interesting area. I'm glad you guys are on it because I think it's it's one that we're not dealt with effectively and with the right efficacy, you know, in youth that can carry on so much into, into adulthood and cause so many problems for people that it, it seems un, uh, unnecessary and, and we can really get around those. So congratulations on, on some really excellent work there. And thanks for being part of the 20 and 20. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Yara. Next up is Zoe Jenkins from Swinburne University of Technology and St. Vincent Hospital here in Melbourne. Good morning, Zoe. Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you on. Uh, and again, I'm starting to, starting to get some, I think I'm getting chest pains talking about all this cardiovascular stuff. Um, you're looking at how anorexia and in particular as a condition can affect all sorts of things. Give us an idea of what's going on there because we often don't think of the comorbidities or the things that are associated with that particular problem separately, do we? Yeah, exactly. Um, unfortunately, anorexia has the highest death rate of any mental illness. So someone is six times more likely um, to die than the general population if they suffer from anorexia. Um, and the main cause of death is uh, suicide with the next highest contributor being cardiac complications, which can result in sudden death. Mm. So what, what does this mean in terms of like prevention or treatment afterwards? How do we, how do we deal with this? Because it's, it's a condition in itself that is very, very hard to address. Yeah, exactly. So my project is trying to um, look at the underlying mechanisms that cause the cardiac uh, complications uh, and other research has suggested that cardiovascular disease can be caused by disturbances in a branch of the nervous system called the autonomic nervous system. So we're investigating whether abnormal autonomic nervous system function leads to increased cardiovascular risk in uh, people with anorexia and then also whether there's any Function um, after people achieve weight restoration, leaving a kind of scarring effect. Mm. So, is this something that uh, appropriate dietary intervention, like very specific dietary intervention, could assist with, or are we still a long way from even knowing what the connections are? Uh, well, it's a very um, it's a very kind of um, multifaceted disease. Um, so, we're hoping that if we're able to kind of highlight some specific deficits in autonomic nervous system function, we might be able to um, recognize people that are at increased risk for cardiovascular um, disease yep. and Monitor potentially them chronic. Yeah. 
Yeah. Look, um, really, really great stuff, Zoe. Thanks so much for chatting about that. I think um, this is one of the things we don't hear about a lot, and it's great to hear about it here on Einstein and Gogo. Thanks so much. Thanks, Shane. Next up is Shami Fadusi from Deakin University. Shami, Good morning. Yeah, good morning. How great. Are you? Good. Great to talk to you. Well, I'm, I'm freaking out because I'm interviewing 22 people in, in just a few minutes, but that's a different story. Um, you're working on something really interesting, which is um, this idea of non-flammable sort of electrolytes or materials for, for sort of, I guess, next generation batteries. Uh, I mean, are, are these materials normally highly flammable? I, I haven't thought much about that. Yeah, uh, currently I'm working on uh, that is a sodium battery that uh, already you say next generation battery, which is more uh, sustainable and a cheaper alternative to current lithium ion batteries that uh, currently use in our phones, Teslas, and which have safety and temperature stability issues so um, an Australian company will soon import these materials from the UK and uh, hopefully mentoring them here in near future mm. um, my work has discovered new functional materials uh, which is so-called ionic liquid electrolytes to make these batteries longer lasting and safe to use at higher temperature. We are also working with a local chemical company, Boron Molecular, to manufacturing these materials. And we are testing both uh, button cells and phone size prototype batteries at Deakin Munich um, battery health facilities. Yeah, so no more batteries blowing up on uh, catching fire in planes? Is that what we're talking about? Yep, yep, yeah. Yeah, is this something that um, does it change the efficiency or functionality at all? Or yeah, yeah, it's, it's changed the efficiency quite a lot. I mean, it's uh, uh, quite uh, definitely the uh, compared to the uh, acceptable uh, the current market available is quite high efficiency, like ninety nine point nine nine percent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, it, it sounds like fantastic stuff. Every time I hear about this, it always seems to be down at Deakin. You guys are doing some really good stuff down there at Deakin in this space. It must be a. Is there a big center down there doing all this? There's a lot of you. Yeah, we have, I think, in, in, in our lab, the currently uh, ARC, uh, Australian Research Council, Stored Energy mm. uh, Research Hub, and then we have Training Center. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Excellent. Well, look, it's so great to... It's yep. great that it's happening yep. down there in Geelong and also partly in Melbourne, I suppose, but um, excellent work. Thanks so much for being part of uh, Einstein and Gogo today. Yep, thank you. Next up is Casey Hetsi-Pentelis. Good morning, Casey. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Shane. It's good to have you on there. You're looking at uh, a particular class of antipsychotics that are used in the treatment of cognitive impairment in schizophrenia. Tell us what, what cognitive impairment happens during schizophrenia. Yeah, so there's uh, quite a diversity of cognitive impairments, but um, the most common ones are things like work working memory um, and cognitive flexibility, so the ability to kind of adapt your behaviour in different scenarios. Um, but most importantly, they're incredibly poorly treated in schizophrenia patients, so not a single antipsychotic out on the market at the moment is actually able to meaningfully improve cognition impairment in, pa in patients at all. Mm. So, so what are you uh, trying to do there in, as an alternative? Yeah, so basically I'm looking at um, a novel kind of antipsychotic. So it's at the preclinical stage at the moment, so not in clinical trials. Um, but it acts at a receptor that's expressed in the brain uh, called an orphan receptor. And it's basically because we have absolutely no idea what it's meant to do in the normal brain. Um, but theoretically, based on where it's expressed, if we can activate this receptor with a drug, we can treat both the psychosis and the cognitive impairments. Yeah. Um, the cool way that we're doing this, I think, is uh, the most ex exciting part is by testing them in a behavioural test um, that's actually completely reflective of those used in the clinic to test patients, and that's touch, touch screen based testing. Okay. 
And how many people in the community have schizophrenia? I don't have a good feel for how prevalent it is. Yeah, so it's about 1%, oh. um, which is actually quite a large yeah. number when you think about it, yeah. Yeah, that's a huge number. I mean, that must cost the country a small fortune in terms of… A lot. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Cassie, it's, it's really… Um, Important work. Keep that up. I, I like the idea of the use of the touchscreen and various other alternatives. Oh, absolutely. Watching mice use touchscreens and playing the games that are pretty much exactly the same thing used in patients is really <laughs> exciting to see. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Thanks so much for being part of our 2020 today. Thanks. Triple R. It's our 30th anniversary uh, month and we are celebrating in a lot of different ways. And today we're celebrating by interviewing 22 PhD students in just over 20 minutes or so. I'll give them about a minute each and a minute for me. That makes it a little bit longer, but we're having a lot of fun. Next up in our group is Long Nguyen from the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Long. Good morning, Shan. Thank you for having me today. Look, it's, it's great talking to you. Your area of work fascinates me. This is this whole thing about wound healing and how hard it is, especially in you know diabetic patients and so forth, to get their wounds to heal and you'll bring in some really interesting materials to try and help with this process. Tell us about that. Yeah, Shen. So first of all, it's important to know that chronic wounds are a serious health problem in Australia that affects around 400,000 people and costs 2% of total national health care expenditure. Mm. And chronic wounds can take months to heal if at all and significantly reduce the working capacity and quality of life of patients and current treatment methods are not sufficient enough. Therefore, it, it is important to develop new strategies for effective wound care that provides better patient yep. outcomes and cost savings. Yeah. So what are you doing? And so and so naturally, um, wound healing can be promoted by biological molecules that induce necessary cellular events. However, the isolation of these molecules from the body use limited amount and producing them synthetically is complex and expensive. So my project aims to develop new types of materials from marine-based polysaccharides to mimic the therapeutic activities of the biological molecules in our body that enhance wound healing. And these materials are commercially available in high quantity and low cost, making the therapies feasible and more economical. Oh man, it's like we just we just seem to get everything from the oceans that helps us in our medical space, whether it's antibiotics or new molecules, so many complex molecules we're getting out. It sounds fantastic. And, and, and these things are readily available, no problem whatsoever? Exactly. Yeah, so um, the materials that I'm using, there are a type of sugar known as polysaccharide that are derived from towel or seaweed. And there are various types of seaweed in the ocean that you can find. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's great stuff. Long, thanks so much for chatting to us today in the 2020 program on Einstein and Gogo. Thank you, Shane. Thank you. Next up is Kate Senior, from also from the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Kate. Morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. You work in an area that I find absolutely fascinating and people know I'm often trying to get guests in this area. This whole thing, maybe I'm a pyromaniac, I don't know, but I love the idea of how bushfires operate and different types of fires that occur um, and their scales and so forth. Tell us a bit about this idea of pyrodiversity that you're working on. Yeah, sure. So pyrodiversity is just the idea that there's different types of fire, um, so different variations in the timing, the season, um, how patchy a fire is, and that all of these things kind of go together to make a kind of pyrodiverse landscape and that we can manage landscapes by kind of changing these different things to try and meet what species need. Mm. Um, and I think it's a reality that we're going to have 
more fire in the landscape with climate change and also more fire management. Um, and so we kind of need to really have an understanding of how these patterns affect biodiversity so we can try and manage it better. Yep. And can we then like plant particular types of trees, presumably, to make sure that what we get is is more reasonable and more controllable? Is that is that the, the plan? Um, I don't really work with trees. I think... Um, I'm kind of more interested in working with what we have. Right, yep. Um, and so trying to manage like kind of buffers um, and with prescribed burning, try and do, see if we can um, kind of make mosaics of different patchiness and stuff like that that will create kind of buffers in the landscape that prevent large-scale wildfire but also mm. maybe allow fauna and flora that need um, kind of longer unburnt areas and stuff to still persist. In yep. terms of planting stuff out, that's a different field. Um, there are some issues like that. For instance, in the alpine areas, stuff isn't growing back. Right, and that's something that we might need to work with in the future too. Yeah, very interesting. I think that I, I think that idea of actually planning the landscape in a way so that um, you know it, it, there are areas that you know in, in the past we'd use fire breaks and so forth, but I guess the situation is getting far more complicated now, and with more fierce fires and so forth, it's it's pretty tough. So interesting work. Thanks so much, Kate. Good luck with that. You know, you know, in in the near future, Thanks, um, bushfire season coming up. So uh, get back, get, go back to work right now. <laughs> Hurry up. Thank you. Uh, good stuff. Next up is Vessel Berger from the Monash Institute for Pharmaceutical Sciences. Vessel, good morning. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having us this morning. Look, it's good to talk to you. You, you work in an area that's uh, very close to stuff uh, I've worked in the past. I mean, obviously, um, you, the conditions you're working on are things like uh, schizophrenia and Alzheimer's, but you look at particular atomic-level information about drugs. Tell us about what you're doing there. Yeah, that's right, Shane. So uh, I work on a, a protein family that's widely expressed in the central nervous system and is involved in um, some of those disorders uh, you mentioned. And um, as Cassie alluded to, and as you probably can appreciate, there really isn't much out there in terms of treatment. Um, so what my project's all about is uh, using a technique called um, cryo-electron microscopy uh, to really try and get an understanding of how uh, potential drugs or molecules interact um, with the, the, these proteins and specifically, you know, what atoms are interacting. And then once we have that knowledge, can we, you know, do a more rational approach to designing uh, uh, drugs and, and, and uh, you know, anticipating how these drugs may work. Yeah, I mean, normally I assume we, we look more at those sort of larger scale chemical interactions as opposed to, are you talking more about this, you're talking more about the, the physical parameters of the interaction, which is far more specific? Yeah, no, exactly. So we're really looking at, you know, what atoms or residues of the protein are interacting with the drug. And then I think particularly, you know, once a drug is bound to the receptor um, or the protein, how does that drug interaction change the, the structure of the, or the structure of the protein? And how can that change in structure um, then explain the function of the protein? And really getting an idea of how these interactions drive, um, you know, the functioning of the receptor in, in a disease state and, 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 and so forth. Yep. Very cool stuff, Vizzle. Thanks so much for being on the program today and good luck with the ongoing work. Thank you, Shane. Next up is Eveline Mew. Good morning, Eveline from Swinburne University. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. Now, you're working on something really interesting. This side, um, sort of some of the visual pathways and our sort of facial um, emotional processing that happens for people who are on the, on the spectrum, the autism spectrum. How is that yeah. different to everyone else? Yeah, so generally just individuals with autism reportedly have difficulty rapidly processing salient facial emotions such as fearful faces. It is believed that the amygdala, a brain area that's involved in emotion processing and its connections with other brain regions may be responsible. However, the 
like there's inconsistencies in what researchers believe is happening with the amygdala. Some has reported hypoactivation, others hypoactivation, or simply the amygdala itself is not central for social behaviour and therefore cannot explain for autism. So using electrophysiological measures such as EEG, which has excellent temporal resolution, um, my PhD highlights that the inability to respond effectively to salient information may be better explained by alterations in the early visual pathways breaching the amygdala and then carrying the information thereafter rather than the amygdala itself being the issue. Right. Um, and then when I'm looking at low and high autistic traits in the normal population, so as we know, autism was traditionally considered as a clinical condition distinct from the general population, but mm. there is a growing number of studies that are showing that autistic traits are continuously distributed across the population. Right, just to varying levels and varying degrees, presumably. Yeah, yeah, to a lesser degree. So technically, I guess everyone, including all of us here, have to a lesser degree um, some autistic traits. Yeah, I think that's really interesting that you're talking about that problem being, I, I suppose, closer to the front of what's happening, you know, like our, our visual processing system as yeah. opposed to the amygdala, which is responding, you know, where we get all our emotions, a lot of our emotional response and so forth. So it's really happening in that very complex processing part of the brain where yeah. we know we get errors. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So when I do my PhD work, I do behavioral data and electrophysiological and in behavioral data, everyone's performing the same. There's no difference. But then when I look at the timing of very early visual pathways, there is some dis um, discrepancies there. Mm. Everline, super interesting work. Uh, good luck. Uh, keep up. And, and it's such an interesting space, the autism space now, because it affects so many people and we're, we're starting to make some good progress there. So congratulations. Thank you. Next up is Simone Stevenson from Deakin University. Good morning, Simone. Morning, Shane. Now, uh, you're our modeler in the group, which is excellent. <laughs> and you've been, you've been looking at how how we, uh, I guess, you've been creating virtual ecosystems to see, you know, how that can sort of give us information about the the way in which we're we're trying to deal with biodiversity loss. Tell, tell us about how you're doing that. Yeah, so um, we are kind of aiming to check whether indicators, which are these kind of little bite-sized chunks of data that the government uses to make decisions about things, so. Um, protecting ecosystems or limiting resource use. Um, and so we want to check that the indicators are actually mimicking the real world. So we want to know that the indicator, indicator goes up when biodiversity improves or it goes down when it declines. Hmm. Um, but it's really difficult to measure all of nature in reality to kind of check these indicators. And so the virtual ecosystems are a computer program that kind of works like The Sims, but for plants and animals. And it allows us to generate this kind of perfect knowledge of the system while also generating our kind of imperfect indicators to compare the two. Yeah. Well, I hadn't really thought about that. That I mean, what you're looking at there is really whether or not the things we're actually measuring, the things we should be measuring, and whether they give us any sort of efficacy or, or real-world view of, of whether our, our efforts are fruitful. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, because the data that we collect can be kind of biased towards different species or areas, it may not always truly reflect what's there. And if it's not really reflecting what's there, then there's the danger that we don't make the right decision at the right time and we suffer permanent biodiversity loss. Yeah. Well, look, Simone, I hope your uh, research tells us that we're looking at all the right indicators and everything's perfect and so forth. I fear that probably won't be the case, but it's it's really excellent that you're doing this work and, and putting a you know a proper lens on this to make sure we're, we're viewing the right things at the right time. Thanks so much for chatting today. Thanks, Shane. Next up is Michelle Clark from the Walter and Liza Hall Institute for Medical Research. Good morning, Michelle. 
Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me today. It's good to talk to you. Now, you are working on a disease, which I have to say, this happens very rarely on my show after almost 30 years, that I have <laughs> not heard of before. It's Is it Leishmaniasis? <laughs> Leishmaniasis. I was close. Uh, actually, not, not <laughs> close at all. Now, this is something that apparently, uh, according to what you sent me, you can get, especially in sort of Africa, Asia, Central and South America, from a sandfly bite. What is this particular disease? So, it's a parasite. Um, so, kind of like, think malaria, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, so, you get it from the bite of a sandfly. And it causes these ulcers and they're really big, nasty, severe things that take years to heal. So we see them on the skin um, and also in the muco, uh, mucosal laser, so in the mouth and the nose, and they actually can be quite destructive of all those facial features. Right. So we see people obviously experiencing a lot of stigma because they've got these horrible things on their face. Mm. Um, but the the one that I focus on is actually, unfortunately, the life-threatening disease where it, right. the parasite actually infects the liver and the spleen. Yeah. Um, and, and without treatment, and unfortunately a lot of people uh, can't afford treatment, um, yeah. it will kill them. Now, just quickly, you're, you're working on a similar approach I've heard of being used with uh, malaria as well, where you're going after the cells that the parasite uses as opposed to the cell, uh, the parasite itself. Is that right? Yeah. So we're trying to like uh, kill the home that the parasite's living in mm. um, rather than the parasite itself, because obviously uh, in with uh, also with malaria, there's a lot of resistance to the drugs that we're using. Um, they've been in the field for a long time and they're not working very well anymore. So we really need to find new treatments in these ways. These treatments, there's no pre-existing resistance to them, so there might be a, a great way to try and target the disease. Yeah, excellent stuff. Now, um, thanks so much for chatting to us on On Gogo. Good luck with the ongoing works. Great stuff. Thank you, Shane. Thank you. Um, next up is Claire Young from Deakin University. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. Now, you are developing a digital program that helps people experiencing depression to change their diets. This this is something that I can imagine would be incredibly hard because you know when when you're in that state of mind, you the last thing you want to be doing is worrying about things like what you're eating and and so forth. It can be quite you know incapacitating. Tell us how you're going about that. Yes, and that's right. It is. Um very much important to look at the motivation levels and that's part of the work that we've been doing. So we developed a whole range of different digital programs, both online programs and smartphone applications and used how our participants interacted with these programs and all the feedback that they gave us on the different components Mm. and also the messaging that we were um, giving in terms of the dietary advice to develop an optimised version of a program that was simple enough, but yes, also effective to uh, motivate dietary change. Yeah. How often does a person need to get sort of information in such a program? Is it something where you, you only interact with them once a week or is it daily or is it several times a day? What's required? We found the best way was via a smartphone app that was actually a daily interaction. Mm-hmm. So just checking in uh, each day for a short period of time as to where they were with their diet. And the advice that we were giving was around a Mediterranean style diet. Mm-hmm. So, uh, how they were tracking to follow that diet, um, looking at the app and getting feedback from that app. Yeah, look, it's fascinating. How many people did you have in the trial? Uh, total, we had over 600 people. Wow. Um, and 
trialling the actual application of the final version, we had 150. Wow. It looks, it's great stuff and it sounds like a really good and as, as we were saying with the just the frequency of interaction that's very important in those scenarios, but it sounds like a really good thing to be having a crack at. Um, thanks so much, Claire. Good luck with the ongoing work. Thank you. Next up is Mary Barati from the Hudson Institute of Medical Science and the Ritchie Centre down there. Good morning, Mary. Uh, hi, Shane. Exciting to be here. It's great to talk to you. Now, you grab something that most people throw away and you do stuff with it, um, placentas. I've heard of people cooking it, but what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, we are treasure hunters, Shane, yeah. and our treasure is placenta. Well, um, the type of the cell that I'm actually interested in are the ones that are found on the amine layer of the placenta, mm-hmm. and they are called amnion epithelial cells. Um, What makes these cells special is that they have these anti-inflammatory and tissue repair properties. But my interest is particularly in these tiny biological packages that they release when you culture them in a petri dish in the lab. Okay. Um, Yeah, these packages are scientifically known as extracellular vesicles, but um, I have a nickname for them. I call them golden goodies. Um, They contain a whole set of information like um, DNA, RNA, and protein, and what is cool about them is that they carry the same therapeutic properties as of their cell of origin. And if you use them instead of the cells themselves, you're actually avoiding the challenges that comes with cell therapy like scalability and cost while you still have the same therapeutic superpower yeah. as the cells. Look, yeah. it, sound, it sounds fantastic. I mean, presumably we need to get more people to donate this tissue so that there, there are banks of this that you can utilize and, and in some sense get people to the point where they're thinking of it that way so that when we need it later, we'll have lots of it. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we are very much dependent on the consent that we get after mm. each um, um, uh, like delivery um, that happens. Uh, but the moms are usually very generous with um, consenting. So we get it and we, we are very thrilled when we have one placenta in the lab. So yeah, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. that's actually um, an issue, but because we have these um, deliveries happening a lot, um, it's, it's good. Yeah, no, that's excellent. I'm sure when you go in there and you talk to the moms and tell them that their placenta, which would otherwise be discarded on the floor, is gold and goodies and stuff, um, they're, yeah. they're very happy to sign off of it. Mary, interesting work, uh, great stuff, and um, good luck with the ongoing work. And we hope that it's, it's amazing to hear about those, those particular materials coming out of something that we otherwise would discard as medical waste. So thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks, Shane, for the opportunity. You're very welcome. Next up is Sam Davis from the Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. Good morning, Sam. Hi, Shane. Great to be here. Now, why, why are you talking to me? You should be off working on a COVID cure, aren't you? Isn't that what all the Doherty people are doing? I know there's some of you that aren't, but uh, it's exciting to, to talk to someone from, from this institution. You're working on this um, particular antibody and how it, how it works with HIV therapies. Tell us, because um, HIV, HIV therapies are so you know well-established now, they're working really well. What, what, what are you working on? Yeah, so the current treatment uses these antiviral drugs to essentially put HIV on pause, right? Mm. So we've been looking for a cure or alternative treatments by harnessing our immune system. So we have these special things in our bodies called antibodies, and they are Y-shaped proteins that can stick to HIV and then basically tell our immune system to kill it. But what I'm working with is an antibody called IgA, which is important in controlling our immune system and stopping it from hurting us when we're not sick, but can actually hinder the ability of our cells to kill HIV when they're given 
therapies, basically. Hmm. Okay, so so you're actually, I mean, this HIV seems so bloody smart, doesn't it, with all these things, and and we really have to make sure that we can we can outsmart it. So you're actually dealing with some of the negative effects of our current treatment protocols. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah, basically the new treatments that are coming out are all antibody based, but sometimes mm. our immune system mm. wants to control ourselves and yep. kind of does the effects. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, I think that anything to do with the immune system at the moment, it's fascinating, but it's tough. So, you know, good luck with that. I, I hope, uh, you know, it goes in the right direction because, you know, we're really starting to get a good understanding of the immune system and using it to fight our battles for us is definitely the, the future. And, and But there's some bumps along the way. So thanks so much for chatting to us today. Thank you. Next up in our second last uh, 2020 for today is Mary, Maria Petraki, from the, also from the Centre for Cancer Research at the Hudson Institute. Good morning, Maria. Morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. You are working on um, some of these cells that get, I suppose, enriched when we're going through chemotherapy. I mean, tell us a bit about that process. What's happening with, with the body when we have that treatment? Yeah, sure. So what we know about these cells, they're called glitter cells, and they're actually pretty intelligent. So what happens when a woman goes into chemotherapy? Um, these cells get very upset um, with it, and so they trick her. So they go and hide, and so the woman thinks that she escaped. And so while they hide, they try and recruit more leaders in their team to help um, them attack. And so not only they resist um, chemotherapy, but they enrich following chemotherapy. So my project is um, on identifying the molecular nature of these cells and trying to understand the secret conversations they have with other cells um, in the body. What are the secret broadways um, that they use to hide and escape treatments? Mm. And, yeah. And is this something we could sort of just turn off if we, you know, if we get the right sort of molecule or whatever here, we could just turn this process off so that they can't hide at all. Is that the goal? Um, that is the goal, yes. Um, we would need um, a lot of research to do this mm. because we don't know um, a lot about these cells. So these cells have been identified in other cancers, but uh, they were recently identified in ovarian cancer. So we first need to um, understand a bit more about how they work. Yeah. Did you say ovarian cancer? Ovarian cancer. Yeah. I mean, this is such a terrible area of cancer that's... Um yeah. It is. It yeah. is. Yeah, it makes me so angry um, just by talking about it. If you think that um, more than seventy-five percent of women are diagnosed in advanced stages when ovarian cancer is progressed and mm. nothing else can be done, it's um, it's such an understudied and underfunded area yeah. in Australia. Absolutely, Mary. It's it's one that I, at some stage we've done shows on this before. We'll do them again. We want to talk about it a lot more, and the, I hope you get more research funding for that because it's something that we need to put a huge effort into. Thanks so much for chatting to us today. Thank you so much. Lucky, lucky last is Atore Kamalingi from Monash University. Good morning, Atore. Good morning. Hi, Shane. Thanks good, for having me. It's good to talk to you. Um, now, you're working on one of my favourite little birds, the fairy wren, and looking at social complexity and what society looks like in birds. Tell us about that. We don't normally think of society in birds. Yes, exactly. If, uh, for example, sometimes you observe bears interacting in, in the garden or in a park and you wonder how they organize and if they live in a, some sort of society as we do, uh, more or less is what I'm trying to understand in my PhD. And yeah, I'm focusing on the on the little uh, super fairy wren, which is the blue bear that you might see around Melbourne. And uh, after these two years of research, um, a picture of a very complex society emerged. Um, yeah. And it seems that individuals interact with each other in a systematic way and that 
different levels. And so they form these family groups that organize inside clans, that organize inside roaming bands. And um, this is very interesting to me because it's called a multi-level society and it's a sign of high social intelligence. And usually you find it in, in humans, in our species, yep. in hunter-gatherer society, and in some primates with a big brain, some, uh, and also animals with big brains, such as elephants and yeah. killer whales. So it's surprising to find this complex Birds. society in a tiny little birds, yes. Oh, look, it's fascinating stuff. Tori, we're, we're going to have to chat about this again at some stage on the show because I love it. But thanks so much for being part of the 20 and 20. Thank you very much. Thank you. Folks, there they are, all 22 of them. Uh, I am now going to play for you a special interview I did with Jocelyn Bell a long time ago. Uh, this is me 20 years ago. Be kind. I was uh, much younger. We're joined now with Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who is one of the preeminent scientists of her time and certainly one that um, most of us in the area of physics or astronomy have heard of. And I even noticed recently, uh, even in the chemistry building where I am, they all seem to know your name. Welcome, Jocelyn. Thank you. Now, you are sort of noted for the discovery of the pulsar yes. way back in 1967. Tell us a bit about how that came about, what, what was happening around that time. Well, it was an accidental discovery. As they all are. <laughs> Some of the best ones, yes. Yes, and there's actually quite a nice story attached to it. I was a research student doing mm -hmm. a piece of work to write up for my thesis. I was in the field of radio astronomy, picking up radio signals from stars and galaxies and things right. out there, and also inevitably from locally generated interference. Yep. Radio telescopes are very, very sensitive, and just a little bit of spurious radio emission swamps the cosmic stuff. So one got that as well. And I was studying quasars, which are a whole talk in themselves, some of the very distant things in the universe... Very mysterious, very luminous. Mm -hmm. The analogy I like to use is saying it's a bit like you're up at some viewpoint, lookout point, videoing a sunset. And mm -hmm. It's a beautiful sunset. And along comes a car and parks in the foreground right. and leaves its double flashers, its hazard warning lights going. All right, yeah. And spoils the video. Right. So we were focusing on these very distant things in the universe and something sort of poked up in, in the foreground and said, Yahoo! <laughs> What's this? Right. Yeah. And um, now I, I've been reading a, a bit through your bio and it's, it's sort of uh, taken for granted, I think, by most scientists these days exactly how things were, were done back then, mm -hmm. um, back then in 67, which is um, pre-me by, I think, four years. Um, <laughs> of course, yes. <laughs> so, um, not to make you feel bad there, but basically, how was the data recorded at that time? I mean, what, what were you doing? There were very few computing facilities at that time. There was a little bit of computing, but it went on the project that the chair of department favoured. And so our project, uh, first of all, was a homemade piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. We spent a couple of years sledgehammering posts into the ground, soldering, brazing, welding metal together, things like that. And then the output was on moving paper chart, paper chart that right. flowed under a pen, or strictly speaking, flowed under four pens. Right. And produced phenomenal amounts of paper. Right. Uh, it was about 400 feet of paper per scan of the sky. It was mm -hmm. dastardly. So, so in a, on a common day, how many feet of paper would you be um 96. No, 96 per day. 96 feet per day. Yeah. And you were, you were solely responsible for... 
analyzing yes. this? By that stage I was. The, the construction team had melted away after we'd mm -hmm. finished building it and I was left to run this telescope with the supervision of my thesis advisor, Tony Hewish. Right. But I was basically in charge and uh, was going out to the observatory regularly to do exciting things like filling up the ink wells, <laughs> putting more paper in the chart recorder, mm -hmm. stuff mm -hmm. of life, you know. Right. I know uh, the, the common idea of a telescope out there is the sort of thing that's on a little tripod and looks up into the skies and everyone imagines the larger versions of those mm. and certainly we have quite an array of them here in Australia as well. But this is a radio telescope. How, yes. how is that different? Describe yes. for our audience the, um, the sort of telescope we're talking about. Well, the typical radio telescope is like a giant dish. Mm -hmm. There's a big one at Parks that people yep. may have seen pictures of. It's like a dish that's oh, 50 foot across, something like that, and you can point the dish at different bits of the sky. And that's the sort of classical radio telescope. The dish collects the radio waves, catches some radio waves, and focuses them all up at a point a bit above the dish where you have a, a radio receiver. Right. But our particular radio telescope was a good deal more primitive than that. If you can imagine about 2,000 of the sort of original type of TV aerials, you know, the strands of wire kind of thing, mm -hmm. we had about 2,000 of those operating in the VHF band and tons of copper. I think there were nearly two tons of copper that were actually making up the, the right. antennae. And the whole thing had to be kept up out of the grass because it rains in Britain and wet <laughs> grass is an excellent electrical short. Right, yeah. So rather more obvious were about a thousand wooden posts, a couple of metres high, mm -hmm. and they kept the, the copper wire up out of the grass. Right. Now... The idea of the pulsar itself, I, I, I've seen this in you know science fiction shows and so forth now, so it's certainly a well-established and accepted um, object in the sky. But mm. what, what exactly is a pulsar? I mean, how does that differ from the quasars and so forth you were looking at? Or? Pulsars are relatively small, well, very small, um, and relatively local. Typical pulsar is about 10 miles across, but it weighs as much as the sun weighs. So there's an incredible amount of mass jammed into this ball that's 10 miles across. If you took a thimble full of one of these neutron stars, it would weigh as much as the whole of humanity, right. as much as the 6 billion people that we believe inhabit the Earth. Right. It's also Amazing. got a very strong magnetic field, and somehow, we don't yet understand how, it produces a beam of radio waves and behaves a bit like a lighthouse, sweeping a beam around the sky. The fastest one gives you about 200 pulses a second. Mm -hmm. That means it's doing 200 revs per second. Right. Which, which I guess when you think about it is quite inconceivable it in itself. Beggar's imagination, yeah. yep. The slowest one, which they've just identified here in Australia, is going once every eight seconds. So right. that's quite leisurely. Right. But, yeah. yeah. I guess this is one of the things we've also seen with the um, the big search for gravitational waves. So many advances in equipment in other areas, you know, time-based equipment, what, what have you, have been pushed forward by this desperate need for precision. But Jocelyn, the pulsar was way back in the, was it the 30s? It was uh, the neutron star was first... Um they discovered the neutron in 1933 or 34, mm. and there is a story, uh, may or may not be true, that when the news reached Denmark, mm -hmm. 
Right. That evening, several physicists were sort of sitting drinking coffee together or whatever they were doing, maybe not in Denmark, drinking beer, <laughs> and saying, uh, you know, wonder what impact this has. And one of them came up right then, that day, with the suggestion that there could be stars made largely of neutrons. Well, Jocelyn Bell, pleasure Thank to have you here. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Well, folks, that was Jocelyn Bell and me 20 years ago. We're going to have our follow-up interview 20 years later next week. Until then, have a great Sunday. Remember to listen to Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again very soon. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.